What a blessing it is to be able to gather on this Sunday morning. This particular day, of course, that is the first day of the week. And we have the opportunity to offer unto God our heartfelt worship and our appreciation for who He is and what He has done for each and every one of us. I would say that, again, I thank uh, the, uh, those of you that are able to come during um, one or more of those services this week to either Will Ed or to Montrose. And those services went well, but thankful to be able to be back here today and worship with the Pippin Church of Christ. We're going to consider a lesson about blood this morning. Many things the Bible has to say about that, and we're going to take a fairly unusual approach, I suspect. This opening slide, this next one before you, is going to ask you and I to consider this. Don't you find it interesting that, say, the Red Cross makes frequent pleas for you and I to donate blood? You know, it's not unusual to perhaps hear a special, uh, a special message from them at certain times of the year pleading with those who donate blood that they might do so and give because there's a shortage. There's an insufficient supply. Well, that prompted me to give some thought to the lesson that's before us today. I'd like you to think about blood donations in light of the Bible. In light of some things we're about to study, and it all begins on this slide. I'd like to begin by making this statement. For some people, the very sight of blood is a rather uncomfortable thing. It makes them queasy. They perhaps become lightheaded. Some people even faint at the appearance of blood. They're very uncomfortable with it. But one thing about that request I mentioned earlier from namely the American Red Cross and others that in fact are behind that effort, on occasion, don't you find it interesting? The human family has been able to manufacture equivalent things to take the place of the genuine article. For instance, chemists can make fake diamonds. That is to say, not made by the normal processes of nature, but rather go to a laboratory and by the processes in place to manufacture it. Haven't you ever wondered, why don't we just make blood? Why don't we have labs that generate as much of it as we need? And here's the reason why. Mankind can't make it. Let me ask you to note this statement from a representative of the American Blood Centers. There is no substitute for blood. It cannot be made or manufactured. There's a reason that the Red Cross and others ask for donations because we cannot make it. The way in which it behaves, the properties that it has, the characteristics and qualities that are it, we cannot duplicate them. The human family doesn't know how to do it. But there's something about blood donations that you'll notice next on that slide. There's more than one type or category of blood. Now, maybe you know what your blood type is. You'll notice there's A and B, A, B, and O, and there's positive and negative on each one of them. Eight different categories or types of blood. And certainly it's clear that at least in general... Those in hospitals and those who are nurses have to be very mindful of what kind of blood a person has, for if you give them the wrong kind, it could kill them. It could be very, very serious. And so it is at the bottom of that slide. There is one of those blood types, it's O negative, that is at least as widely regarded as a universal donor. 
A person who is O negative can give his or her blood and any one of the other kinds at least typically can take it and it can be beneficial for them. Maybe you have O negative. Even if you do, your blood is nowhere near the universal donor we're about to describe this morning. In fact, the next slide will take that to one further step. Because as you well know, the Bible has much to say about blood. Over 450 times in the Bible, the word blood occurs. 450 times. And obviously, many of them relate in one way or another to sacrifices either in the Old or the New Testament. Because isn't it so that they were required to extract blood and to sprinkle it in the appropriate way when they came to worship at the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Not only that, you'll appreciate that on some occasions that reference to blood does refer to human blood, as for instance in Luke 8, verses 43 and following. There you and I might remember that a woman who was afflicted with an issue of blood came to Jesus and He healed her. That blood stanched, that, that issue of blood stanched, the text says. I say all of that to say, as you and I close that slide without a doubt, the focal point of the Bible's description of blood centers on the blood of Jesus Christ. Focusing on it, calling our attention to it, and asserting what that blood can do. Would you study with me then for the next while in our lesson about the universal donor of the blood of Christ? Doing so in a way I hope it will be meaningful, helpful, and encouraging to you and to me. There are several things about the blood of Christ, and one by one, let's look at what makes His blood the universal donor. Let's start with this particular idea. The Lord's blood is so amazingly unique. Point number one is this one. The New Testament declares that His blood is innocent. Don't you find it interesting? Judah said that. The very one that betrayed Him. It was Judas who referred to the Lord's blood as innocent. Now, you and I know what kind of mindset and mentality that Judas often had. He was interested in money in the monetary bag, according to John 12, verses 1 to 6. And yet, when this comment was made, he referred to the Lord's blood as innocent. Don't you find it remarkable to reflect then on that innocence in the blood of Christ? It is true, isn't it, that in Deuteronomy 17, verse 1, the Old Testament sacrifices were commanded to be blemishless and spotless. An individual couldn't bring just any old animal and have it sacrificed to God. It wouldn't be accepted. The animal had to have no blemishes. It had to be perfect in regard to the estimation of those who oversaw that activity. But all of that takes us rather immediately to the nature of the blood of our Savior. Oh, indeed, innocent. But it was innocent because He never, ever committed a sin. I fear that on occasion it's easy for you and for me to read past verses like that one because we seemingly look upon them as almost beyond belief. And yet it happened. No, you and I can't live 30 years without sin. We can't even live likely a month, a week, sometimes even a day. And yet here the Master lived in the flesh on earth for that amount of time and He never committed wrong. 
He never erred. His judgment was never misdirected. The words he spoke were never improper. The thoughts that he allowed to cross his mind were never such that they were wrong. The places he went, never mistaken. Our Lord was perfect, and therefore His blood indeed was absolutely innocent. I would call to your attention Hebrews 4 verse 15. In that passage, we read this monumental statement. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Therefore, in light of the activities of Jesus, He faced the very same temptations you and I do. Temptations from people. Temptations from those who are out to get you. Temptations from those who might be family members. He faced all of it, and never did He sin. That gives you and I encouragement that He has the means, the teaching, the doctrine, the mechanism that allow us to face any situation and do so with confidence that we, with wisdom, following His guide, can also master it ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, there, as Peter neared the close of that point in his discussion, he pointed out no guile was ever found in his mouth. How difficult do you and I tend to find it to safeguard our words? Isn't it true that that's one of the easiest things you and I can find to slip on, isn't it? In the heat of a moment, we say what we wish we never had. We come to regret it. We hurt somebody or we say something that quite frankly will ultimately come back to get us very strongly. Jesus was such that never was any guile found in His mouth. And that word guile means hypocrisy. He never said one thing and meant something else. He never misled somebody by saying one thing that was close to truth but really wasn't. You see, that's really still a lie. The Lord never fell into that trap. His blood was innocent. That by itself would make a dramatic consideration, but we aren't even done. What about point number two? We so far have learned about the innocence of the blood of our Savior. What about the concept of no substitute? Let's begin by this thought. The New Testament overwhelms us with this beautiful sentiment that redemption is found in the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, the inspired writer pointed out there, it was not with silver and gold that you were redeemed. Now, as he made that point to his listeners on that occasion, of course, the impression is left with you and me too. It's not by anything like silver or gold or wood or finery in any way, but, he says, with the precious blood of Christ... Jesus' blood is the only blood that can redeem, and that makes it so unique. Unique from the perspective, again, of His perfection, but unique from the perspective of redemption that it makes available. In Ephesians 1, verse number 7, Paul pointed out early on in that Ephesian letter, it was with the blood of Christ that you're redeemed. Redeemed with the blood of Christ. And he echoed that statement in Colossians 1, 14. To say all of that quickly takes us to the famous words of John. Aren't you still amazed that John could say in John 1.29, He saw Jesus on one occasion, 
to His own disciples, He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What other blood can take away sin? Not mine, not yours, no animals. Hebrews 10 verse 4. The blood of Christ is that characteristically unique. The blood of Jesus. That can redeem you and me. And so the key question must be, am I living beneath the umbrella of the blood of Christ? If I'm not, it isn't His fault. It's your fault or mine. It's my choice. What about you and me today then? One last set of verses on that one. In Revelation 5 verse number 9, that interesting consideration on that occasion where again that beautiful picture of the revelation and yet in it we read in that verse, it is the blood of Christ that has washed those who are faithful. Have you been washed in that blood? I know that when you and I picture the characteristic of baptism, we think about water in that baptistry. But may I say in a very, very actual way, when you and I are plunged beneath that water, we're plunged beneath the blood of Jesus. It's as if there's a torrent of the blood of Christ in there and I'm plunged beneath it. And it's that blood that cleanses sin. Isn't it said in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 that Jesus is our Passover? That takes us right back to Exodus 12 when the children of Israel were told to put blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Sure enough, it is. When He sees the blood of Christ, He'll pass over us in light of the guilt with which they may be available. The uniqueness of Christ's blood. Point number three. In addition to these two characteristics, would you note this one? Reconciliation. That's a long word, I confess, but the Bible uses it. It means to bring back parties which are at odds with each other. When two groups, two individuals, let's say, have a disagreement, when they have, in essence, an impasse, when by some means that disagreement is taken care of and they come back to friendship... They come back to harmony. They come back to unity. It is said they have been reconciled. The New Testament says concerning Christ's blood, the following. Let's build on that with Isaiah 59. What is it that sin does to your life or mine? Isaiah, God speaking through him, put it like this. In power and in directness, and in somewhat a strong note of reality, he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. When you and I commit sin, we build a wall, we separate ourselves from God. That's what God said. Notice what the blood of Christ does. Could I direct you to Ephesians 2.13? As we read in this particular passage, beginning in verse 12, Paul to those individuals said, They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, without God in the world and without hope. Notice what kind of condition these individuals were in. But that's the condition in which they were before the blood of Christ. 
Because verse 13, he says, Now you are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now to be made nigh is to be made near. God was pure and holy, and by your sin, you moved yourself away from Him. But now, the blood of Christ has closed that chasm, bringing you back to God, and you can enjoy relationship with Him. You can be a child of His, a member of His kingdom, faithful to Him, and a part of His family. That's what the blood of Christ is able to accomplish. Are you and I beginning to appreciate the uniqueness of this blood? One last thing about that one. No other blood, of course, can accomplish that. Romans 5, verse number 9 says, and I'll begin, of course, with a little earlier in that passage, but Paul said, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Now, that word justify brings us back again to a state of being right. And Christ's blood did it. Did you notice it wasn't money? It wasn't anything else that might be described, but it was His blood. We may again pause to ask each of ourselves the question, Are you and I covered with a marvelous and powerful umbrella of the blood of Jesus? Point number four. The church. How did the church come about? I know that you and I imagine at some point many years ago, some people labored to build this building. And we're thankful they did it. And yea, there are buildings labeled as the Church of Christ all over this county and the counties that surround it. We're not talking about that building. This building is not the church. You and I are the church individuals, human beings who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. No wonder Paul could say this in Acts 20, 28. As he spoke to elders of the church at Ephesus, Paul directly told them, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, the latter part of that verse says it rather notably, doesn't it? That church was purchased by Christ, and in particular, it was purchased with His blood. His blood is what made the church possible. He bought it with it. He purchased it with it. No other blood has ever bought a church. May we be quick to say, no other blood will ever buy one. You know, it'd be easy for anybody, I suppose to start teaching something, and if you're eloquent enough, and if you're insistent enough, somebody likely will follow you. And you can get a little group of people meeting based on this doctrine you've come up with, but that it in the church, Jesus never purchased that. It's His pure doctrine, that New Testament that we're about to see in a moment, that He purchased, that church He purchased with it. For those reasons, look at Ephesians 4 verse 4. We've highlighted so far this universal donor and the great characteristic of blood. How many churches then are there? Well, according to the New Testament, there's only one. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul, how many bodies are there? One. Now you and I can't change that, nor would we ever want to, because that's the will of heaven. And so the uniqueness of the blood of Christ is highlighted yet here. Now you and I place a great deal of confidence in those officials that handle the blood supply of our land. It needs to be labeled correctly and it needs to be administered correctly. Look at what Christ's blood has done. It purchased the church. Oh, how great we can appreciate that work. And in Ephesians 1.21, that body, of course, is in fact the church of our Lord. In light of all these things, what about point number five? What else might we say about the uniqueness of the blood of Christ and a thought that moves us toward its universal donor character? I would ask you to consider this one. The New Testament. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 11, and in fact is the same one that has an idea behind the one that John read for us earlier from Matthew 26. Would you consider both of them in somewhat detail? 1 Corinthians 11, it's verse 25 that captures our attention. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the wording again is very intriguing. It says, this cup and the cup that the Lord had was the cup that contained the fruit of the vine. But he says this cup is the New Testament. Now I thought the two were pretty different. The New Testament looks to me to be a book. He was holding a cup with liquid in it. He said the cup is the New Testament. He didn't say it represents it. He didn't say it's a symbol of it. He said it is the New Testament in my blood. I hope you and I will appreciate then that when we take the Lord's Supper, that fruit of the vine is what sealed the New Testament. Now the concept of seal is to authenticate. It is to corroborate. It is to officially declare as genuine and real. Jesus' blood did that to the New Testament. You know, if the Lord hadn't shed His blood, you and I might have a fine book to read, but would it be the gospel? Would it be that which would lead us to heaven? Well, the answer is no. But because He shed His blood, that identified that He was who He said He was and that all the promises and rewards that New Testament declares are in fact the case. And so it is in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus speaking said, when He spoke about His blood, on that occasion He said, This cup is the New Testament in My blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Shed for many for the remission of sins. Point number six. You know, we began the lesson today with this concept of a universal donor. Some people have O negative blood. They can go to a hospital or they can go to some other place and they can give blood and their blood can be used by somebody else, at least in most cases. Jesus' blood was the true universal blood. He shed His blood, and there He even Himself admitted it, that it was shed for many. 
for all who will come to Him, that blood can be effective. That blood can take away the sins. That blood can do the great powerful thing in which it's capable. Let's build some of these points like this. In John 6, verse 54, Jesus makes a dramatic point about His blood. I'd like you to notice it as I read it. John 6, verse number 54. Jesus speaking said, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now the Lord wasn't talking about literally slitting His arm and giving some of His literal blood and letting others drink it. What He was saying was, those who imbibe my teaching, those who live in the way that I've directed, that's described as eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Clearly, there's a demand on you and me. He shed His blood, and it can be effective for any and everybody, but they've got to come to Him and drink of it. There's something you and I have to do. We have to then avail ourselves of that blood. That happens in obeying the gospel. Look a little bit further along in that chapter, verse 56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me. Question, are you in Christ if you don't eat His flesh and drink His blood? Now remember, he isn't talking about the Lord's Supper here. He's talking about one's life in direction to the fullness of His teaching, becoming one with Him. Doing what He says, obeying Him. Jesus says, if you do that, you dwell in Me. That's a great question for every one of us this morning. Am I eating His flesh and drinking of His blood every day of the week? Am I showing forth the light of His blessed example of goodness? Am I living the life of a dedicated Christian? If I am, I'm dwelling in Him, and His blood constantly cleanses my sin. I can live in a positive and confident way knowing that my life here is leading to a better life beyond. But if I'm not drinking His blood and eating His flesh in an ongoing way, then it seems as though I've placed my direction, my priority somewhere else. It kind of reminds you of those disciples on one occasion who turned and walked no more with Him. And Jesus, in fact, asked them, Will you also go away? It was Peter who replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John 6, verses 66 and 68. You'll notice as you and I close that slide, we have a monumental truth presented to us in the Hebrew letter as it concerns the blood of Jesus. Remember, He's the universal donor. Every one of us can benefit from His blood if we will only apply it to us. This is what is said by the Hebrew author. It is the case in Hebrews 9 verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The setting of that passage is this. The Old Testament high priest, you and I might remember, He was permitted to enter into the most holy place once a year. But he had to bring something with him. He had to bring blood. Now, it was the blood of an old animal. It was the blood of a goat. 
It was the blood of some animal that God again had specified, but it was that blood that permitted him access to that place. Did you realize and do I realize that we in the New Testament have a specific similar activity? Look over to chapter number 10. Verse number 19 says it like this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. That's the holy place. You and I are privileged by God to have access to the most holy place. But we too have got to come with blood just like the Old Testament high priest. Whose blood do we carry? Whose blood must we bring if we have any access? I didn't finish the verse. Let me finish it now. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. If you and I don't have the blood of Jesus, we can't enter the most holy place. The Hebrew writer tells us that's heaven. You can't go to heaven if you're not covered with the blood of Jesus. Talk about the universal donor and talk about the benefit of that blood. Isn't it fascinating if you and I need a blood supply or blood transfusion, that might save our life in the flesh, but that blood won't get us to heaven. The blood of Jesus will take us to the place of the throne of God. We've studied today about the universal donor characteristic of the blood of Jesus. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been blessed. Let's close our lesson like this. As we've reflected on this blood of Jesus, we began our study like this. Sometimes requests are made for blood donors. And you and I are thankful that individuals go and do that. But are you aware the New Testament speaks about a much more prolific and a much more powerful blood donor? His name was Jesus. He's the Son of God. And He shed His blood for many that they might be redeemed. And that blood accomplished a number of things that I've listed for you, and we've seen them today. It purchased the church. It reconciles to God. It puts you and me in a position that we, like that Old Testament priest, can have the proper blood and appear before God. You and I at this point can ask ourselves this dramatic and personal question, where does every one of us stand? That's not meant to be asked in just some generic, distant way. Apply it to you and me personally. Where do I stand now? Maybe I was faithful once, and maybe the blood of Christ is something I relished in on a daily basis. But maybe I don't anymore. I have turned my pursuits elsewhere. I've begun to allow religion to be somewhat a habit and no more. Today, if you find yourself in that position... I hope you'll at least think about the universal donor of the blood of Jesus. You need that blood and you need to be washed in it constantly. I say that because of 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. I need His blood every day and so do you. Are you being washed in it constantly? If you're not, you know whose fault it is, and it isn't the Lord's. His blood is the universal one. You need to apply it to you. 
Come back to your first love today. If that's what you need to do, we would love to approach God in prayer on your behalf that He might apply that blood again to you and that you might be safely cleansed and washed. If we could help you do that, it truly would be our privilege. But it might be that someone in the audience has never been washed by. You know, I've never had a full-scale blood transfusion, but there have been times I've had surgery. And I am thankful that there's a supply of blood waiting in case I need it. You know, those who are professionals make sure all of that's in place, and we're thankful for their skill and knowledge. Aren't you thankful that somebody, particularly Jesus, took great pains, and I say that literally, to make put everything in place so that you could have the blood when you need it. We all need His blood. We're about to stand in a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. I want you to know the devil, if you need to come forward, he's going to try his best to make sure you don't. He wants you to stay lost. He wants you to stay right exactly where you are and make some excuse for not coming. But Jesus loves you more than that. The devil don't want you to access the Lord's blood. He wants you to keep it at a distance. Keep it there for some safe rainy day, but he didn't want you to apply it. You see, he knows if he can get you to wait long enough, you'll die in the same way you are and you'll be lost. Don't let the devil be successful at that. Don't wait that long. Obey him today. Jesus' blood is the universal donor. And you and I, in many ways, are the full recipients of all that it has to offer. If we can help you today, we want you to know we'd be honored to do it. If you need to become a Christian, it's done like this. You contact His blood in these steps, and there are no others. You believe on Him fully and completely. You repent of your sins. You confess His name, and in baptism, you reach His blood, according to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. And when you do, that blood will lead you to the rewards we've studied today. If we can help anybody in your response this morning, we'd love to do it now. While together we stand, while we sing.